and welcome to another episode of the Traveling Introvert. But this is the, you know, careers conversation section where we talk to people all around the world who happen to be introverts, but who happen to be rock stars and badasses. And um, and some people that I've met along my travels. So there is some like a little bit of a, a thread here going. So today I, I would love to welcome to the stage um Wayne Turmel. Good um, heavens. I know, There's right? a lot going on in that introduction. Um and um so those of you uh, because this is audio only what you will not realize is that I am definitely in a onesie and Wayne has a beautiful background behind him of welcome to Las Vegas. So hi, Wayne. How are you doing, by the way? I am absolutely fine. Um, I am swell. It's a beautiful day and I'm talking to you and, you know, life is good or at least beats the known alternatives. Right. Well, there you go. There, there you have it. He has cracked the code that life is good and he is he's a happy bunny. Um, all right. So the, the Buddha question... will tell you the secret to happiness is low expectations. Oh, oh that's interesting. Huh. Okay, so my first question to you, as to everyone, is what does introversion mean to you? It took me a long time to come up with an answer to this. Because we often get told, you know, when you start, describe the traits of an introvert. And you get, you know, quiet, keeps to themselves, never bothers anybody. Basically the same descriptions they use for serial killers. And, <laughs> and I, I realized that that is completely unfair. I also realized that I am a stealth introvert uh, in that people who meet me immediately assume that I'm this extroverted uh, human because that's how I present to the world. They also don't see me rushing home to avoid all human contact when the event is over. So I, I technically, if you look at the, you know, the Myers-Briggs spectrum, I'm an extrovert, mostly kind of, sort of, uh, but huge <laughs> introvert battery. I mean, the correct psychology is how do you recharge your batteries? Well, I recharge my batteries by being alone and quiet by myself. So there you have it. Thank you for that. And um, the serial killer mention, just, just, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> I'm not saying it's true. I'm saying that the Venn diagram is tighter than we would like it to be. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, those, those were lone wolves. And yeah, Kitchen's so quiet. Yeah. Okay. So um, I would love to, for you to share. Wait, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna skip all these questions. What's the scariest thing you've ever had to do at work? Oh, good lord! Um, I don't know. There's a smart aleck answer and there's a true answer. I'll take both. Uh, the smart aleck answer is. Tell my boss I wasn't shaving my beard, and if that's a firing offense, then let me know. Ooh. The probably true answer in terms of the scariest thing. 
is very early on in my career. This is how early on it was. We had just rolled out email to the organization, like we were trend trending leaders. And our instructors wanted access to laptops so that we could do PowerPoint presentations and answer email when we were on the road. And you would have thought that we were storming the Bastille. And so while doing presentations is the least of my problems, um, this was probably in many ways the highest stakes presentation Mm -hmm. emotionally because it was how do you value us as employees are we valuable enough that you are willing to invest in us or are we you know just supposed to constantly make the best of the situation mm -hmm. um, so i think that was probably the scariest and i want to know about the beard thing why was the beard an issue okay. or not an issue? Um, there is the stated reason and the true reason. Uh, the stated reason was that we had been, my company had been bought and purchased and bought and purchased and bought and purchased like three or four times in a very short space of time. Mm -hmm. And when the music stopped, I found myself in this training organization that was extremely Madison Avenue, old white male, suit and tie. And even though I wore a suit and tie, um, they felt that the beard was unprofessional and didn't exude the right image. The real reason is I was the sign of everything that had gone wrong during the buyout, and I was being forced upon this group. Matter of fact, my boss paid to move me from LA to Chicago. And there were about five people in Chicago who assumed that that job was theirs. So they were looking for a reason not to like Wayne, which as you know, is not that hard. <laughs> uh, I, can, I can give you the reasons not to like me uh, chronologically and alphabetically, but that was the situation. And, and it seemed like such a silly thing. And it it was a symbol of a lot of other things. Like making me shave was not the most humiliating thing I was going to endure if we allowed this to continue. What role was that? I was a training director. Okay. Right. So I was in front of clients all the time, teaching in the classroom and doing whatever. And, um, you know, only dirty hippies wore beards. So from being a training director, however long ago that was, to now, can you tell me a little bit about the progress of your career? Wow. <laughs> um, we have time. <laughs> you almost have to go back to the beginning of my career. Okay. Uh, I, I got a very late start in being a grown-up because straight out of high school, I spent the better part of 18 years in show business, being a stand-up comedian. And then I had to 
run away from the circus and become a big boy with a wife and a child and get a big boy job. And I lucked into, after several false starts, doing absolutely horrific soul-sucking jobs, I lucked into the training and development industry because when you think about it, I had one marketable skill, which was I knew how to stand there and talk. As you start going down the list of jobs <laughs> that involve standing and talking, mm -hmm. uh, teaching presentation skills seemed like a an idea. And I network slashed, fell into a position I was completely unqualified for and just treaded water, as I say, through these buyouts. And every time the company was bought and sold and bought and sold, I was being promoted and finding a spot as everybody I knew was being kicked to the curb during these buyouts. I kept rising in the organization and eventually um, I had reached either the as much as I was going to be in that organization or the Peter principle caught up with me. I'm not entirely sure, uh, but it was time to go out on my own. And then I ran my own consultancy for the better part of 10 years. And then thankfully, uh, Kevin Eikenberry and the Kevin Eikenberry group, he and I had been colleagues and friends for years. We realized there was areas where we should be cooperating and we did for about a year we just kind of worked together and then we worked together so closely that he bought my company and so now i am working inside the kevin eikenberry group as a that's a good question on my business card it says master trainer and facilitator but the truth of the matter is I am essentially the product manager for all things remote. That's kind of my uh, bailiwick is remote and virtual. And as we become more hybrid, focusing on remote and hybrid work. Okay. So how did you manage your energy as a stand-up comic? How did I manage my energy? Same way I do now, which is I work pretty much like a volcano. I'm dormant and I build up all this kinetic energy and then it bursts out of me like a crazy person. And then I am spent and need to lie dormant for another hundred years. Um, it's interesting, though, even as a stand up, which is a very social, super networky kind of life i still maintained human being hours and i was always up before everybody else and usually in bed before everybody else um and and you know saved my energy for the stage because that was the job and then there are things beyond the stage when you're in show business you have to be nice to club owners and you have to make sure you're at the gig early and you have to get along with your co-workers and <laughs> there's a lot of stuff involved um and and you you need to manage that energy because the problem with stand-up comedy is if you're a headliner and you work for an hour a night that still gives you 23 hours that you need to <laughs> 
figure out how to navigate. Mm -hmm. And if you don't manage that, people find all sorts of destructive, non-positive ways to fill that time. Yeah, that's that's very true. And so you also mentioned stand-up comedy being networky and in your next job that you somehow networked your way even through all yeah. the buyouts to still be there. What kind of networking or could you give an example of how you networked at that oh. time? I'll give you the perfect because it's how I got the, the first big boy job that I got um, through a series of events that I will not go into because they're not that important. I met somebody who said, you know, you should consider given your skill set and who you are, you should consider going into the training business. And I said, fair enough. How does one do that? I mean, you know, I was essentially a 34-year-old man, 35-year-old man uh, with a 18-year hole in my resume and no college degree. And so she said, there's this organization. And at the time, it was called the American Society for Training and Development. It's now ATD, the Association for Talent Development, uh, same difference same organization, different logo. Um, and they had local chapters. And I made myself go to uh, one of these meetings just to kind of investigate and see what was going on. And when I got there, I thought I spoke English. And I realized that I had no idea what half these people were talking about. But at the back of the room was this older gentleman who had kind of a smirk on his face. And I found myself sitting next to him. And we were commiserating about the fact that these people weren't speaking English. And the short version is he actually owned a training company. Or at least the local franchise of a training company. And he and I just kept meeting at these meetings and I met his wife and we were very friendly and, and we were, I was at the local conference down to literally my last few hundred dollars. The wife and I were looking at each other like, what the heck are we going to do? So I was networking around and it turns out I ran into Floyd and he said, uh, oh, you're looking for a job. Come see me next week. And I went to see him next week and he's in, and I assumed it was for a contract trainer day position kind of thing. And as I'm going through the interview, my foot starts to bounce because I realized that he's offering me the instructor manager position for which I was wildly unqualified. But Desperate times, desperate measures. The correct answer is, of course, I can do that. <laughs> and that's how I got my first management position. That's how I got into the training business. And from there, I just had to do the job and not screw it up. All right. That is good. And then follow up question. You did that for a while and then you branched out, you said, to start your own consultancy. Yeah. Two-part question, sorry. What were the signs that made you think, mm, I should go on my own? And no, let's start with that. What was the signs that you should go out on your own? Um, they were numerous, but there were two main ones. Um, 
number one was I became fascinated really early on. This was 2007, 2008. This was the early days of WebEx. And I taught traditional front of the room presentation skills. And I realized that nobody was teaching people how to communicate using these new tools. Communicating through a webcam, uh, doing webinars, doing virtual training. It's a lot of the same skills, but you apply them differently. It's a different set of muscles. And nobody was teaching anybody how to do this. And I was really, really, really trying to get my company on board that this was a wave of the future and was getting the usual, oh, Wayne is on one of his rants again response. And so I really, the second thing was I can read a spreadsheet and I knew that the company was uh, not doing exceptionally well and I was probably doomed. Now, funny story, so I'm thinking about this and I'm talking to my wife and I remember I had just gotten back from a trip overseas and I was standing in the living room talking to my wife and I said, you know, there's a, a thing here with this virtual work and maybe I could uh, get to the point where I step down from a full-time position, I continue to teach as needed to pay the bills and start my business and 20 minutes later the phone rang and I was fired. Dun, dun, dun. So, you know, I'm not a huge believer in signs from the universe, but that was pretty much neon. <laughs> Big flashing honking sign, like, you yeah. might as well go do this. But, I mean, even still then you had the option of maybe I should do something part time to keep paying the bills and work on my business at the same time. So why didn't you do that? Uh, well, partly because their policy forbade doing that. If you had been a manager, you weren't allowed to work part-time. I think the assumption was that you would be a pain in the neck uh, because you would think you knew everything and people would be afraid to coach you and whatever. So uh, that was part of the reason. The other reason was I got a very fair uh, severance. Yeah. And that allowed me to get set up. Fair dues. All right. So now that you've told us a little bit about what you've done and how you've grown, is can you tell me about some, <laughs> excuse me, misconceptions that people have about your job or industry? Well, the most obvious one is that um, because I'm a trainer, because I am out there, because I speak for a living, all that good stuff, that I am this raging extrovert. And, you know, there is nothing more terrifying to me after a day of being on my feet training or doing a keynote uh, when they say, a few of us are going to dinner. Oh, oh, heavens, no. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of a basic one. I think when you think about the training and development industry, there is an assumption that we are a account. The problem with the training business is that it is an accounting problem. Uh, I don't think I've ever given you this theory. If I install equipment in my factory and I have a conveyor belt and I put that conveyor belt on a maintenance plan, mm -hmm. every few months somebody comes in, oils it, checks the treads. 
I, I can write that off. Mm. If I want to bring training into my organization, that is a cost. And so when people are figuring out their budgets and, oh, we're not meeting our sales numbers, training is often the very first thing that gets cut because we are an expense. We are not an investment. And so the biggest problem with the training and, and coaching business is this notion that people know they need to do it, but it's so easy not to do because it sounds and looks expensive yeah I I feel that one a lot I have a lot of people especially right now that are very much like I want to do coaching but my organization is doing rounds of layoffs in September and January and December and so I'm gonna wait it out or you could do the coaching now and be ahead of the curve so that if you do get let go that you're already looking for but but yeah well, and, and people listening to us right now are listening to us whine uh, about how hard it is to sell our product, which is not the intention. But I know that's what it sounds like. It's not the intention of the conversation. It's not the intention. Um, I, wait, so you're not whining? Just just for clarification, you are not? Oh, no. Oh, okay. I've been in this business long enough. I understand the dynamics. I'm still here. <laughs> right? We've made it. So is there anything that you say no to? Yeah. A bunch of us are going out for dinner after. Um, I try to avoid that as best I can. Um, is there anything that I say? Yeah, I've gotten better. Um, the worst thing to me is when people learn about my background and they say, we want a keynote, but we want it to be funny. Fine. And My eyes that's a hard, far back. <laughs> that's a hard stop. Um, for numerous reasons. I mean, first of all, comedy is really hard. Uh, the second thing is, uh, while you may have figured out that there is plenty of humor and energy in what I do, that's prime. That's secondary to the primary function, which is the message and the information and delivering the skills. Mm -hmm. It's a byproduct. I mean, I happen to think it's a competitive advantage um, if people have the choice between being bored or not. Or, you know, as I tell people all the time, misery is optional. You can learn things without being bored and miserable and stressed mm -hmm. uh, but to make humor the primary thing that i do no 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 i no do you say no to doing that or do you say no to the contract overall because that's the angle that they're coming at it from usually it's keynotes and i have done enough bad failed keynotes that I would rather not take the work. I Now, I will have the conversation. I mean, whenever I say, I don't really think that's a good idea and here's why. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I can sway them. Sometimes they go, I get that. Um, but sometimes it's just, that's not the gig for me. You've got the wrong guy. 
I can give you a bunch of people. I know a bunch of comics who specialize in corporate humor. You're welcome to look at them, but not for me. Okay. Is there something that you do regularly that has improved your career slash business? Yes, and it's really boring and humdrum and people don't want to hear it. Yes, we do. Um, and this is going to sound like criticism of you, my friend, which it is not. Maybe we don't want to hear it. Exactly. No, what is it? Um, I have found that for me, when I start, and I've worked from home at least part-time or worked remote from my teams my entire career. I have found that I need to institute a regimen as if I was at work. And by this, I mean, I get up very early. Yes, as you pull the hoodie over your onesie and and disappear into the background, I cannot do that. Mm -hmm. I do not function well in that environment. I need to get up. I check my email for burning fires and emergencies, but then I have breakfast and I watch Sports Center, and then I shower and put on big boy clothes and make my bed if my wife is not still in it and sit down at my desk and my day has begun. I send Kevin a quick message in Slack. Hey, I'm here. How's it going? And my day starts. That is super important for me because I was at the beginning very bad about when does your day start? When does your day end? Um, I was draining my energy unnecessarily. I was never really getting up and focusing because mm. my day never really had a start. I just looked around and went, oh, it's 10 o'clock and I'm still in my ACDC t-shirt and my bunny slippers. Mm -hmm. um, so developing that routine was really important for me to manage my energy. There's no way that sounds like a criticism. I totally... I'm on board on having startup and shut down routines or systems because it helps your brain. Your brain's like, okay, well, you're drinking out of this particular cup of coffee, like cup. This is your I'm at work cup. Um, everyone works differently and has ways to to set that up. So no, I did not take that person. Okay. Yeah. No, fully on board with that. Um, I could talk to you forever because I really enjoy talking with you, but I can't. So um, I have one final question before we tell the people where to find you and the question is Wayne do you think a hot dog is a sandwich oh the great philosophical question of our time the answer is yes because and here is why I say that the purpose of a sandwich is something between two pieces of bread Number one is I can never keep the hot dog bun in one piece, which means it ultimately winds up being two pieces of bread. <laughs> the second thing is that, because I buy cheap hot dog buns at the supermarket and they always separate. Right, okay. But the other thing is that as a child uh, whose family was less than well healed, uh, we frequently had hot dogs on white bread, which... Same hot dog, same condiments. Uh, the guts of a hot dog bun are essentially cheap white bread. 
So yes, a hot dog is a sandwich. A hamburger is a sandwich. A taco is not a sandwich. Because? Because it does not use bread. It uses a tortilla and it is a foldable thing as opposed to mushing it between the two things. This is not something I'm prepared to go to the mattresses over, but it is my personal take on it. The last follow-up question on the bread theory thing there is, so what about an ice cream sandwich? What about an ice cream sandwich? I think if you are eating an ice cream sandwich, the detail, like how much thought you're putting into your food, into your body is pretty much wasted. So I, I, I haven't really given that enough thought to have an opinion. Wow. Which right. by the way, it's taken me 62 years to respond to questions with, I have not given that enough thought to offer an opinion. That is not my default position, just so you know. It should be. All right. Well, thank yeah, you for that. It should be. But it's, <laughs> as you well know, it has taken me a very long time because I will opine about anything. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you giving your time for me uh, this. Well, for me, it's afternoon. I think for you, it's morning. And please let my audience know where they can find you and your work. Yeah, absolutely. As far as our work at the Kevin Eikenberry Group Remote Leadership Institute, uh, find me on LinkedIn, Wayne Termel, T-U-R-M-E-L. I am not hard to find. KevinEikenberryGroup.com has our blog, uh, our courses, the ways that we work. And you can look on Amazon and get not only our books like Long Distance Leader and Long Distance Teammate, uh, but my fiction writing and non-business stuff too. So uh, those are ways that you can find me. Thank you so very much. And everyone have a great rest of your week. This is Janice at thecareerintrovert.com helping you build your brand and get hired. Mm -hmm.